Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and World Affairs, a podcast channel of New Books Network. I'm Sharika Crawford, your host. Today, I'm with Stephen J.L. Taylor. Dr. Taylor is an associate professor in the Department of Government at American University. His research focuses on urban politics, the politics of race and ethnicity, civil rights and liberties, and political cultures in the U.S. and West Africa. His book, Exiles, Entrepreneurs, and Educators, African Americans in Ghana, was published by SUNY Press in 2019. Welcome, Dr. Taylor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure having you on New Books Network. Thank you for agreeing to do the interview. Yeah, thank you for interviewing me. I like to begin um, my interviews generally with um, the listeners learning a little bit about the author. Could you tell us a little bit about your personal and or intellectual biography? Okay, I, I, I think I can. I, um, I, I am a, I've been at American University since 1996, um, since the summer of 96. I came, came here immediately after getting a PhD at the University of Minnesota, um, which in 96, and then I came here to wash, back to Washington, but I, um, I, I had also had a background prior to becoming um, and a professor. I was an academic advisor at several different colleges and universities, and my first master's degree is from Florida A&M in guidance and counseling, and that's where I started my academic career at, at Florida A&M, or as FAMU, as we're affectionately known. Um, and so then I, um, after a number of years as an academic advisor, then I, then I went on to, um, um, I went back to school and did another master's and PhD in poli sci, and that's what I've been doing. Now, my my research eventually, initially began, I was doing research on school desegregation. That's what my dissertation was on, and my first book was on comparative study on school desegregation in, in two northeastern cities, Buffalo and Boston. Uh, and I uh, eventually, because that book, I focused a lot on political culture, so I decided to look at the origins of African-American political culture and see if there were similarities to West Africa. And as a result, that's when I started traveling to Ghana in 1998. Uh, I've been there nine times now. The most recent, uh, and I, one um, previous publication was a journal publication looking at the political influence of clergy in the African-American culture. And I saw that as related to the, um, has West African origins, that um, strong influence of the clergy. And, um, Later on, I started this project. I had a Fulbright to go to Ghana in 2016, and I did, and I taught at the University of Ghana for a semester while I was doing research on looking at the African-American expatriates and seeing if there was, if they were involved at all in, uh, in politics, either um, probably not formally as far as voting because they're not citizens, but informally taking advantage of some of the democratic um, privileges in the Fourth Republic of Ghana where they could be involved in and things like protests, political contributions, 
um, political campaigning. And I wanted to look at their political dispositions because they got to like the United States is a strong two party system and which party were they affiliated with. So I spent uh, um, that time, the spring semester of 2016, I, it was a participant observation. I became a member of the African-American Association of Ghana, um, interviewed a lot of um, number of African-Americans and trying to find out what, what were the political leanings. And then I, uh, when I came back, I started transcribing the interviews and I put together a book looking at archival data or secondary sources about African-Americans who first came to Ghana um, in the early 60s and late 50s and comparing that first generation with the generation that came after uh, 1981 and seeing the difference in their political activities. And that those, those differences are um, elucidated in the book, Exiles, Entrepreneurs, and Educators. I thought that it could be helpful for um, our listeners, some of whom may not be familiar with the centrality of Ghana as a site for relocation or repatriation, as you pointed out, um, for African-Americans um, throughout the 20th century. And perhaps you might explain um, kind of the trajectory of Ghana as a, as a site on the continent that's attracted uh, African-Americans um, to live there. Okay, well, Ghana was the first um, sub-Saharan uh, African country in the 20th century that became independent uh, um, from a European power. In that particular case, it was Britain. So um, after after Ghana became independent in 1957, the head of state, Kwame Nkrumah, had a strong affinity toward African Americans. He had um, he had been, he had spent ten years in the 30s and 40s in the United States. Got his um, undergraduate and um, and his and his theolo theological training at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, one of the oldest historically black colleges and universities, and, and remained, um, um, was an itinerant minister in, um, in the United States. And he spent, so he spent that time, he was, he was ac active in a, in a historically black fraternity, Phi Beta Sigma. And then, um, so when he came, when he went back to Ghana later on and um, established this, this, this fledgling state, he invited Black Americans to come to help build this state, and he uh, because his vision was from for a united Africa, which included diasporic Africans, those of us who live in the United States and in the Caribbean, for that matter, who have our historical roots in Africa. So that was his his, his dream, and so that's why Africa. That was the first country that African Americans started coming to in significant numbers. That in Tanzania, where Julius Nyerere was the head of state, he was also a, an ally of Nkrumah. Another thing, reason why Ghana, that's probably the major reason why Ghana came, uh, it, it was a destination. Another reason is that we are of West African heritage, and Ghana is, was one of the main um, ports from which we departed when we were, when we were stolen and taken to the, um, to the Western Hemisphere. And that's, that's noticeable by the number of slave castles that dot the shores of Ghana. And, and so, and then uh, when Krumah was, head of state for nine years, and he was deposed in a coup. And, and then, um, so that ended that invitation toward African-Americans. But um, in 1981, when Jerry Rawlings took over in a, in a coup also, he tried to renew that invitation. He, he, he fashioned himself as a devotee of Kwame Nkrumah, though he was not a contemporary, he was much, much younger. 
but he tried to re, um, renew that invitation to African Americans to come to Ghana. So that um, and which many did, but his his motives were were different for us to come than Kwame Nkrumah's were. You set up very early on in your book um, the first wave of African Americans who came um, during the Nkrumah years versus those who will come um, after um, Rawlings' invitation in the post 1980s, and and one of the ways you do that is by utilizing um, this terminology of the first wave as being called the politicals. And I thought that it could be um, important for our listeners to understand what did you mean by this group being politicals, and could you offer some um, maybe notable examples of, of of those individuals who you found during your research. Okay, um, and certainly I, I didn't coin the term. I'm copying that term from others. Heard them as that, and the reason why is because they were invited to help build up the government, and so some of them were um, had had positions in the government, either in, in public policy or in, in just some of the nuts and bolts issues. Like, for instance, one was an architect, Max Bond. Um, whose brother was president of Lincoln University, who, and that same brother's son um, was Julian Bond, um, for, uh, the late Julian Bond, who was a colleague of mine at American University. And so that was why they were called the politicals. You had W.B. Du Bois, um, who was, came as an advisor to Nkrumah. His wife, um, Shirley Graham Du Bois, she set up the Ghana Broadcasting System. So that, that's why they were called the politicals, because of their um, close relationship to the political structure, to the Convention People's Party of Kwame Nkrumah. But like uh, you you note in your work, not all of this uh, kind of outreach towards the African-Americans um, to come to Ghana under Nkrumah was, was always welcome or favorable. And in the love affair with Ghana, it does come at the end um, during the coup. But could you talk a little bit about those um, first wave, the, the politicals, and how they interacted um, not just with Nkrumah, but kind of the larger kind of Ghanaian society and, and, and their situation um, in those in those years between the late 1950s and early 1960s? Well, that's a good point. Um, I think that um, th- there was some people were, you know, yeah, two different opinions of them, and probably more than two, but two that I talk about. And there were some who were uh, who, who were envious and resentful of the fact that people who were not born in Ghana um, were um, had, had the opportunity to have such a close relationship with higher officials, including the president. Whereas there are others who looked at them who were who, and who were close to the president. Some of them were suspicious that are these people involved in fifth column activities against the country? And, uh, and uh, so they so some thought, might they be spies trying to overthrow the government? So those, those were opinions. Now, um, there, some of the politicals um, immersed themselves in Ghanaian culture and pretty much became Ghana. Like you had two of Nkrumah's um, colleagues that went to um, Lincoln University with them, Robert and Sarah Lee. They became dentists and they, um, uh, they, they moved to Ghana and they settled and they raised their children there and they remained in Ghana until their death, which was in the 20 teens. So, uh, and I interviewed somebody else who came during the Nkrumah days and stayed there, and so there were um, so certainly there were some some of the um, some of the people from that generation of so-called politicals who decided that they um, who did immerse themselves in Ghanaian culture. 
So you pointed out that there's been quite a bit of work um, done on this first wave, the politicals under Kwame Nkrumah, and that your book project really wants to look at the second wave where there's been fewer studies done. And that brings us to the figure, another important figure in your work, um, J.J. Rawlings. And for and, and while many of our listeners may be somewhat familiar with Kwame Nkrumah because of his uh, project of um, Pan-Africanism um, as the first leader of a um, post-Sub-Saharan African country to gain independence. Maybe others are unfamiliar with J.J. Rawlings. Um, who was he and, and, and how does his political um, philosophy, if you will, um, or mission sort of um, relates back to Nkrumah or, or not? Okay, that's good. That thing you brought up, how does it or not? Because it does and it does not both ways. Um, if Jerry John Rawlings was a a junior level officer in the Ghanaian Air Force, a young man, and he um, and there was Ghana had endured a, a, a series of coups after Nkrumah was overthrown. Um, they had a brief experiment with democracy during um, the Second Republic and the Third Republic, both which lasted under three years. But um, uh, there, after the uh, Second Republic, there was um, a lot of dissatisfaction. With the military, um, uh, the military coup, which by that time was called the Supreme Military Council, there were problems of um, shortages um, of essential commodities, lack of uh, lack of political freedom, and people were very upset. And this was led by this was a coup led by generals, and so Rawlings was part of a group of junior officers. He was a, a lieutenant, a flight lieutenant. They overthrew that government in June, on June 4th in 1979. Now, initially, there was, by that time, elections were scheduled because the military um, regime uh, um, under Ignatius Kutu Achampong had made the decision that they were going to allow elections to proceed that year. Rawlings, um, when Rawlings came in, he did allow the elections to proceed. And the elections did um, produce uh, uh, the, uh, the Third Republic under Hila Liman. And uh, he, he, he assumed the presidency and Rawlings stepped down and went back to the barracks. Well, then after after several years, three years, he was not uh, or two years, really. Uh, there was still a lot of dissatisfaction with the, uh, the with the economy and other. Uh, so they there was. So Rawlings came back and, and staged uh, a second coup. Now, um, some of the people who liked Rawlings and he was a young person. And they, 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 his, his name, as I say, Jerry John Rawlings, J.J., and some of the people liked him because that J.J., Junior Jesus. And when he came back on December 31st of 1981, they called it the second coming. So, um, so that's so, somewhat blasphemous, I would think. But anyway, um, Rawlings came back. And he first he came back, at, um, he, was, he was espousing a lot of the a rhetoric of, of Kwame Nkrumah. Pan Pan African rhetoric, rhetoric nationalist and socialist, because Nkrumah was um, was an avowed socialist, and this is what Rawlings started as. And then, within in less um, in about a year and a half, he reversed course and embraced the free market and decided that he would cooperate with the international financial institutions, such as the International Bank of Regional Development, also known as the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. So they started a structural adjustment program to bring the economy back. Because I think by that time, by the 80s, he realized 
um, that uh, came to realization that I don't think Krumah came to realization is that the East Bloc countries were not able to provide a lot of help. Um, and so, but there, there was a lot of money in the Western countries. So Rawlings, he continued to see himself as an Nkrumahist, as a nationalist, uh, as a Pan-Africanist, uh, but still he, he, he embraced the free market in the way that Nkrumah never did. And that had to do with the difference in the two generations of expatriates. You had the politicals that came and, were, and, and, and became involved in the CPP, the Convention People's Party of Nkrumah, and a lot of them were shared as political philosophies. But then this second generation that came after Rawlings, uh, I called them, and this, this term I did coin, the entrepreneurials, because they came to take advantage of the growing economy of Ghana. And that's what um, Rawlings wanted to do. Nkrumah wanted them to come help build this fledgling state. Rawlings came and wanted them not to work with this fledgling state because he was, it was a dictatorial regime when he first came. He didn't want any help, but he wanted them to help build up the economy. So he had um, two generations that had different, different priorities. I want to break apart a couple of things that you've laid out. And the first is to kind of get a handle on um, the more contemporary um, political party system in Ghana, as you pointed out, in the Fourth Republic. And obviously, Rawlings is central to that story. And then I want us to come back later to talk about how he is able to encourage the second wave of African-Americans and then get to your the heart of your book, which is, you know, how do they situate themselves within um, Ghanaian um political culture in, in the two-party system. So let's start with that first question. Um, um, what, how might we understand the, the two political parties um, that are vying for power in Ghana during um, the Fourth Republic today? Well, I see the two parties as a continuation of the First Republic of the 50s and 60s, because you had two different, um, two, two different political traditions in Ghana. You had the Nkrumah tradition, which was uh, a bit more radical. And then you had what we call the Dankwa Buzia tradition, named after um, Joseph Boachi Dankwa, who was, uh, who, who, who was one of the political leaders, and Kofi Abrifa Buzia. Um, and, and, uh, and so they, um, they um, who were allies with one another and who were, who, um, and that, that, so you had, at the beginning, you had, um, uh, initially, um, you had the United Gold Coast Convention versus the Convention People's Party. So one was um, the, the the former was a uh, uh, was led by J.V. Donkwa, of course, the latter by Kwame Nkrumah, and this is what it, this is who you had cont- contesting. Now, after um, when when Ghana became a republic um, three years after independence in 1960, you still had the um, uh, you, you had the United Party, which was led um, um, uh, led by J.V. Donkwa against the CPP, which was led by Nkrumah. They and Nkrumah won that election. And then Nkrumah and, and, and pretty much outlawed all um, opposition parties, and, but he was subsequently overthrown. And when you had the Second Republic, you had um, the National Alliance of Liberals, which put together um, the old Nkrumahs um, groups, and, and, they, um, and, and they ran against, uh, and that was led by um, Kofi uh, 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 Kamala um, Badema, and, and they ran against Buzia. Um, and Doc, uh, and, and, and uh, Kofi Abrifa Buzia won that election. So the Second Republic was an anti Nkrumah, the Doc Buzia Republic. And then the third time around, again, you had the, the parties had different names because each time you had a different constitution, they banned the parties from using the old party's name. So you had 
in Krumis, though, was, was Hila Liman, who won the election uh, against uh, uh, Victor Owusu, who, uh, who was representing the Akwabuzia tradition. Now, after, and then you had a number of years where you had the uh, um, Rawlings government, which um, in his, and it was led by his group, which called uh, the Provisional, uh, that was Provisional National um, Defense Committee, the PNDC. Now, when Rawlings decided to allow elections in the early 1990s, scheduled for 1992, then um, the PNDC, um, um, they allowed other parties to form, but they could not use the names of other parties. Now, some people were diehard in Krumis, and, um, and they didn't like Rawlings because he overthrew um, Hila Liman, who was an Nkrumis. But Rawlings tried to reach out to the Nkrumis group, and he tried to say he was Nkrumis. Even he used a term to describe his supporters as Baranda boys, which, um, which was a term that, that he borrowed from Nkrumah. And so, um, but so, so pretty much it's just almost like with the Second Republic, you didn't have many ideological differences, a lot of differences based on the ethnic groups that were affiliated with the parties and who they, uh, and who they saw as their hero. And one group saw the Donquabuzia tradition um, as 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 their lot, and the other saw the Rawlings group saw the um, uh, um tradition as their lot. And Rawlings, um, so Rawlings formed his own party, and they went they they dropped the P. They were PNDC. They dropped the P, and they called them the National Democratic Congress. And so now they're the NDC, and the Donquabuzia people formed um, the, the NB, NPP. The, uh, new Patriotic Party, so that those became the two parties, and the, the smaller parties, um, and some of them who were more diehard in Krumas, they didn't survive. They didn't do well in the elections. Why? The same reason why small parties don't do well in the United States, Britain, or Canada, or Australia, or a lot of English-speaking countries. You have in this country and in in Ghana a system where there's only one parliamentary member per district. And there's no proportional representation. It's winner take all. All you need is a plurality of votes, and you get the seat. And that means only large parties will survive, and there and there will be no coalition. There is very unlikely to be a coalition government. So that's what happened in Ghana, just like it happens in the United States. Smaller parties don't survive, and or in Britain, um, they don't survive. So that so Ghana ends up with a two party system, with you have the Donquabuzia tradition, um, and then you have the Nkrumahs tradition. Uh, 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 some of the Nkrumahs might disagree with me categorizing the NDC as the Nkrumahs party, but that's who they've reached out to. And a lot of the differences are not necessarily ideological. They just have to do with which groups they appeal to. The, the NPP has their, um, their base, their strongest in the Ashanti region and in the eastern region among some of the different ethnic groups in the eastern region, pretty much the Akan-speaking peoples. Whereas the um, the NDC has the, the strongest, the largest number of votes come from the Volta region among the Ewe people, which is the group that Rawlings, the ethnic group Rawlings belongs to, and in people in the northern regions. So, though, though, so you have the, the differences, the two parties are, are regional origins and um, uh, the affiliation with historic icons in Ghanaian politics. You also point out in that these two parties, the the NDC and the MPP, can correlate broadly speaking 
to politics in which African-Americans coming there in the 1980s and 1990s could um, understand that the MPP might be akin to kind of um, the right right leaning party, um, similar to the Republican Party of the U.S. and the NDC might be center left or kind of similar to the Democratic Party. And it's from there you really start to kind of turn your attention towards your, you know, the the premise of your research questions and your interest in how would African-Americans situate themselves within um, present day um, political culture in Ghana. What were your initial um, kind of hypotheses? Um, and then kind of how did you come to um, engage with your methodology of kind of uncovering their political um, involvement in Ghana during your research period? Well, in this country, no group is more loyal to the Democratic Party than African-Americans. And some presidential elections the um, Democratic Party gets over 90 percent of the, the, uh, the vote of the black the black vote. That's been the case. Blacks been heavily Democratic since 1936, and even um, and, and that was solidified in 1964. So, um, with that in mind, my assumption was that the NDC um, that was my initial hypothesis was that the NDC would have the strongest support among African Americans because. The NDC op- occupies the same political space as the Democratic Party. That was one reason why they see themselves as as of center left, as the Democratic Party is. Uh, another reason is they 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 they've embraced the Nkrumahist elements, and Nkrumah was the person who who extended his invitation for us to come to Ghana. And there they were they were started by Rawlings, who also re, um, reintroduced that invitation to African Americans. So that was my assumption. Whereas on the other hand, you have the NPP, which models itself as the Republican Party, so much so that um, they uh, they use the elephant as their um, as the uh, for their logo, their party mascot, the elephant, just like the Republicans Party. Uh, they also um, their their color, even though Ghana's flags colors are red, black, green, and and gold, they use the colors that um, of they use the colors of red, white, and blue. And speaking of the elephant, at one point in the um, late 90s, the logo that they used for their party was the exact same logo as the Republican Party, except um, uh, as far as the website logo. The only difference was that the colors were different. They used their flag colors for that website logo, but they had an elephant with three stars in, in its center, um, half of the um, three. Uh, and with a trunk bent at a 45 degree angle from the bottom, it was exact. It was like somebody got a, uh, like when you were children, you wanted to pretend you could draw, you would trace something. That's what it looked like. It was traced. They don't use that logo anymore. But um, and for instance, the um, uh, the NPP, the the president, the le- um, not the current president, but the president prior to him, uh, the NPP president prior to him, um, he, um, um, um uh, John Ag- Ajakum Kufur, he was he was very close to the Republican Party. He came to the United States, um, met with President Bush, who was um, the younger President Bush, did not meet with members of the Black Caucus. And then when they built a new highway, which we call N1 in Ghana, when they re- revitalized that highway, they named it the George W. Bush Highway. And George W. Bush did not have a lot of support among Black Americans. So my assumption was that Black Americans would shun the NPP and gravitate toward the NDC, which is which was similar to the party which they were loyal to back in the United States, and that was my um, my hypothesis. Um, 
my, uh, that my hypothesis was disproven um, in my research. So, well, well, we now we have to go to kind of well, what did you find? Um, um, first of all, how how did you go about um, identifying um, political, I guess, affiliation involvement? Um, um, for African-Americans, as you pointed out at the very beginning of the interview, many of whom, the bulk of whom are not citizens of Ghana. And yet um, you're trying to determine, you know, where their their affinity um, may lie within this political two party system. What I did is I spent that time interviewing expatriates or, uh, um, or some, or I, as I also call them, repatriates, African-American repatriates who live who live in Ghana, or um, some who. And I, some who lived who lived in Ghana and moved back to the United States, and I interviewed them. Some of them had been born in Ghana but became U.S. citizens and were U.S. citizens but moved back to Ghana. So I talked to them, and I, and I had extensive interviews, not not much different than the interview you're giving me right now. And I would ask them a series of questions. I would I'd ask them first of all. I, I would I'm, one of the things I mentioned is about how Ghana is a very democratic country now. Um, if democracy is it um is it's in the streets and people can demonstrate without worrying about um being uh without worrying about um presidentially inspired troops um pushing them away so that the president can go to a church building so you don't um that that doesn't that in this particular period of time it doesn't happen in ghana so i was wondering if uh so i knew african americans that they are they 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 are welcome to participate in the non electoral activities Certainly, that um, contributions are re- welcome. Um, political contributions are welcome, and um, people can uh, some uh, writing, blogging, different things. So I was wondering, first of all, were they active in politics? But even more important than that, I want to know which party that they saw as uh, that they felt an affinity toward in the United States. And that's those were the questions that I asked them, and I um, and I and I talked with people extensively. And as I said, I was a member of the African American Association of Ghana. I went to all the meetings they had while I was there. I was on one committee that we were put we put together uh, um, African History Month events. I also hosted an event with them that I put together um, commemorating Martin Luther King on the 49th anniversary, 48th anniversary of his assassination. So, and this gave me a chance to meet with a lot of people and ask a lot of questions, uh, both in formal interviews such as this one or in conversations uh by uh through through my um, involvement in the activities that they were that that they were holding and and that's yes go on yes oh no no please um i I was just thinking um before you you kind of reveal what you did find i'm we haven't really talked about the the kind of people who um became attracted to um you know, became attracted to living in Ghana, you know, post 1980s. We, we have a kind of a clear sense of who they were during the Nkrumah years. But what were the, the stories? What did people tell you about the reasons why they were attracted to Ghana um, in these last few decades? OK, there are different reasons. Many of them were um, women whose husbands were from Ghana and husbands wanted to start entrepreneurial ventures in Ghana and they came to work with their husbands and start entrepreneur and lots of them were involved in entrepreneurial activities. Um, I um, had a couple of people who were missionaries who went to Ghana as missionaries. Um, And we also had some, and this was where you saw the string of similarity between the first generation, second generation, 
who were very altruistic and started up schools in Ghana and were involved in educating people either at the university on the university level or on the um, on primary or secondary school level. So those these were people who came, but they did not come. Not many came for political reasons. You had several who were with the All African People's Revolutionary Party, a party that was um, at one time had been headed by Kwame Touré, who was earlier known as Stokely Carmichael. And they were they they were similar to the politicals. They were small in number, though, who came because they were just um, they 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 did not feel safe or comfortable being African Americans living in the United States. So they went um, they they came for with the same mission as some of the politicals came. Those weren't the majority of people, though. And you found that ultimately um, there wasn't a link between th- this kind of uh, diverse um, but small population of African American um, expats in Ghana being closely, affi- you know, having affinity towards the NDC party or the the center left party. Uh, why? What? What ultimately did you did you discern about their political, um, you know, affinity? Well, you, you look at the different groups first of all. Uh, last group I just talked about um, was the All African People's Revolutionary Party. They were very incrumist. A lot of them, um, they had socialist leanings as the party, that party does. And when they came to Ghana, um, they didn't affiliate, many of them didn't affiliate with either party. They saw both parties as far too, as too far to the center. And they were not, they were not centrist. So they were disappointed with both parties. So a lot of them did not affiliate. Most people did not um, participate in politics. They didn't come to Ghana to become involved in politics, so they didn't. Uh, the, the, the greatest extent of their involvement in politics was absentee voting in the back home in the United States. Uh, so that's what I found. And then, but 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 even though they didn't participate, I still ask people, which party do you seem to have um, the, the closest affinity to? And there weren't, as I thought, as I said, I thought the answer to that question would usually be the NDC. It was not. Um, um, there were some who did who, who did think highly of the NDC, but there were some, probably more, who thought highly of the NPP, and they affiliated. That was the party that they wanted to see in power at that particular time. The NDC is in power; they're not now. But some of them were looking forward to the NPP coming back into power, and 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 that that that's something that I did not expect. So that, in my from my perspective, that that finding was counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Could it be that um, you you know I'm, I'm curious if, as to for you to expand a little bit you 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 do you do lay this out in your book but I was curious if the racial context of the political party systems in the United States is is a factor that really kind of bears out in your study on African American political culture in in Ghana when you that, that the race factor the white black factor. Um, really kind of maybe impedes um, more fluidity, more competition for the African-American vote in the U.S. Um, and when it's removed, um, you might see different types of um, political af- uh, you know, affinities for the parties that exist. Well, that very much is true. Um, the, United, uh, the United States, historically, there, there were not many ideological differences between the parties. A lot of the differences that you saw, the ideological differences, were, um, came into being um, during the 1930s, during the New Deal, when there was such a catastrophic event, economic event, namely the Great Depression, 
that the Democratic Party, which was at the beginning of the 30s, at the outset of that decade, the Democratic Party was was um, the opposition party. And they decided um, to to, um, ad- to advocate um, aggressive government measures to cope with the economic crisis, whereas the Republican Party did um, uh, under the leadership of President Hoover did not. So that's where the party started to diverge. And uh, uh, neither party diverged much on the civil rights issue, but neither party was supportive of civil rights. But as far as when it came to some on economic issues, since blacks were much, uh, much more hurt than the, by the Great Depression than whites were, they um, they started voting after Roosevelt ran for re-election in 36. They voted for um, Democratic and have been with the Democratic Party ever since. Now, after Roosevelt died and the first election, presidential election after he died was 1948, the Democratic Party for the very first time embraced a strong civil rights plank in their platform which they didn't in 1944 under Roosevelt. As a matter of fact, the Republican platform was a little bit more supportive of civil rights um, under, under Governor Dewey than it was under President Roosevelt. And so the, the parties were pretty much, by 48, they were pretty much on the same page with that. But then the Republican Party started developing a Southern, platform, uh, a Southern strategy, it began really in the 1950s, when for the first time you saw some of these states in the South, voting Republicans, particularly the peripheral Southern states like North Carolina, Florida, Texas, and, and the Republican Party picked up a lot of strength in the Deep South, though they didn't carry those states, they picked up strength. Then the Republican Party started moving away from civil rights, and whereas the Democratic Party became closer on that issue. And then after the 1964 election, where you had President Johnson signing the civil rights bill, and um, whereas his, his opponent in that election, Senator um, Goldwater, was one of the few senators to oppose it. And that's from so you saw very divergent. They might not have been much divergent on the economic issues. And even in those days, not so much on foreign policy issues. They were both both parties um, vigorously pursued the Cold War. Both candidates in 1964 supported U.S. engagement in Vietnam. Um, but they, they, you saw the difference on the race issue. So, the, um, so, so, and this is what happens in a two-party system. Both parties gravitate toward the political center of gravity where the votes are. Like the old saying, go hunting where the ducks are. And the ducks are in the political center when you're talking about um, a political um, behavior of the electorate. So therefore, the parties went, um, both moved toward the center, so you didn't have a lot of differences. But on the race issue, there was a lot of, and still is a lot of difference. Now, in Ghana, likewise, you have both parties moving toward the center. But the race issue doesn't exist there like it does here. So therefore, the, the factor that has brought blacks into the Democratic Party of the United States, um, the fact that the Democratic Party has been more supportive of civil rights, that's not a factor in Ghana from what people see, not, at least not overtly. So, there, um, so therefore, you, you don't have the, um, the, the ideology um, there that would attract African-Americans to one party or the other. Hmm. It would be remiss of me to to not have you talk a little bit about the integration uh, 
social integration um, of these African-American um, expats in Ghana. When we think of expats, you know, that term is often used to describe um, individuals maybe sent by big multinational corporations. They're there for a few years. They kind of huddle up in, you know, separate communities and then they go off to the next, you know, international site or back to their home country. But really we're, we're talking about a different kind of population. And, and, and in your interviews and in your participation with the African-American Association of Ghana, um, you know, how might you ex- describe the ways in which they are, um, you know, finding a life for themselves, settling in, um, maybe even becoming citizens? Well, uh, that's, I'm glad you brought that last part, maybe even becoming citizens. That's, first of all, I find that um, uh, people and a lot, many of the expats in living in Ghana are very much integrated, and I'll um, I'll explain why I, I I have very poor singing voice, but I'll I'll just kind of hum it, and I'll say show how they're integrated. So so many so many of the expats are are, are married to Ghanaians, primarily females who are married to Ghanaian men, so they have. They have Ghanaian in-laws. They have children that are Ghanaian, husbands that are. So they're very much in- integrated. A lot of them are very well integrated into the social life of uh, uh, of Ghana. So that's um, yeah. And so there isn't, and because they're not political, there isn't that resentment of them that um, that you might have seen during the first republic in the nineteen uh, late fifties and early sixties. Uh, so that that's one thing now far as the issue of citizenship. That is interesting. During the Rawlings days, even before the uh, Fourth Republic began, when we were still under the uh, the PNDC, they promised that they would get, they would pass legislation to allow African-Americans to to become citizens, like a law of return, somewhat that exists in Israel. And some countries of Africa have provided mechanisms. Cote d'Ivoire has done that. provided um, mechanisms that African-Americans can become citizens. Um, That is something that was promised almost three decades ago and has never been delivered on. And some people are very disappointed about that. Parliament has never prioritized that. For instance, in 19, um, well, excuse me, in 2001, when Kufour was first in his um, first term, and he came to the United States. As I said, he spoke with President Bush. And he spoke also with Ghanaians living in the United States. He spoke at the embassy. I was there. And he talked about how important it is that Ghanaians get dual citizenship. That means those who were born in Ghana who came to the United States can go back and get their Ghanaian passport. Did not say one word about African-Americans um, be, be, um, allowing that. And some have been pushing for a right of return. But that's not, um, I mean, excuse me, a right of abode, whereas at least they could have some of the rights of a citizen. But that has never been um, that, that has never been passed either. It's been promised. They keep saying it's going to happen, but it doesn't. The African-American Association of Ghana, where their position is on that, that depends on who's the leader of who, the leadership of the organization at that particular time. Um uh, but uh, but uh, but you know, as a result of them not being citizens, there are certain business types of businesses they can't own, and this is the in, um, unless they have a lot of money where you uh, you, you can't uh, a small you can have a larger business where you have to invest at least two hundred thousand dollars 
and not many of them start businesses with that much capital. Many people from the Middle East have come and been able to do that from primarily um, Lebanon and Syria, but not African-Americans. The smaller businesses, they're, they're banned from owning certain amounts of businesses like um, um, hair salons, barber shops. They, can't, they cannot own, cannot own um, taxi cab companies unless they have 10 brand new taxis and a certain number of Ghanaians that they hire. Um, as uh, property rights are restricted. Now, according to Ghana, nobody has pr- permanent property rights that belong to the chief of the village or the area where they are. But the, if you're a Ghanaian has 99, a 99-year lease on property that they buy, a non-Ghanaian has half of that. They only have a 50-year lease, which means that they can't leave their property to their children uh, um, because by the, time, uh, by, by the time that they die, the children will, um, will will not have very many years to enjoy that property. So these are these are different problems that people see. I was curious of your thoughts um, if you've been paying attention to the the year of um, return of 2019 campaign that Ghana, largely led by their their equivalent of their Ministry of Tourism, um, promoted that was um, widely publicized in the United States, which culminated in November of 2019 with a little over 100 African-Americans um, gaining their um, Ghanaian citizenship. You know, how do you see that particular, uh, I guess, platform or program within the larger kind of political and, and cultural history between African-Americans and the Ghanaian state? Well, see, this is what um, you see happening. Uh, they'll get a small number of select elites among the community and provide them with passports in a very public ceremony. They did that in December of uh, of 2008, as the last NP, uh, NDC regime under John Mahama was was um, was exiting from office. They gave a small number of people passports, but there are estimate over 3,000. So um, it doesn't even come close to the number who are who are there and who who would benefit from that. And these are does, it, uh, they, it's still not a policy. As individuals have been selected to receive Ghanaian passports, but there's no policy by which people can receive Ghanaian passports. Mm-hmm. Do you suspect or do you do you imagine that part of the issue is uh, um, this maybe concern over um, potential competition, you know, economically um, with, you know, the local Ghanaian population or just perhaps not a, a lack of a clear, I don't know, um, voice or, or lobbying entity that has made the persuasive argument to either political party when they're in power? I mean, what what might be explaining um, the lack of, you know, um, creating a pathway to citizenship for um, this very actually relatively small population, what Ghana's population is, what, 22, 24 million people? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, now you're asking a question that I didn't thoroughly explore in my book, but I was so inside so not having done research, I can go, only go on speculation and by anecdotal remarks that I, uh, uh, um, that I hear. Um, there might be, just as there are in other countries, prejudice against uh, uh, refugees, particularly. Um, see, Ghana is, is, as we know, very different from the United States. There's not the, um, African-Americans see themselves every day as a black person. They look in the mirror and they see a black person because we're juxtaposed against a white majority. In Ghana, there isn't a white numerical majority. So there's not the same level of consciousness as being black. 
there's more consciousness of being the ethnic group one belongs to than there is. So, uh, so therefore, uh, the idea of you know bringing black people from other countries, the United States, Jamaica, Trinidad, um, Venezuela, or wherever, giving them citizenship because they're black. People don't necessarily are, are not bought over by that argument because they don't think necessarily in terms of race because um, because one race is so predominant numerically, not not necessarily in terms of power. And then uh, so that's um, uh, so that these are only speculations or the hypothesis, maybe something for other researchers to do um, to look at, maybe sociologists. And then there's another issue I can only talk about. I can talk about personal um, conversations, and I'll I'll talk about a remark. I was teaching a class in U.S. politics, and we talked about the influence of the media on politics. And um, then I talked about the media um, images of African Americans. And one of my students said to me, "Well, if the media portrays them negatively, then there must be some element of truth to that portrayal." And I think this is one of the issues. I think they they the, the images that they have of Black Americans are not always very positive. So there might be a fear of uh, that if, of, of this group of people who they see um, in, the, in a very negative light coming to their country. Well, I guess it's an opportunity for for you or other scholars in the future, perhaps, to pick up on this this really kind of fascinating um, but pertinent and relevant question. You know, particularly for those who um, are living in Ghana who might benefited it would appreciate you know obtaining their citizenship or or a long permanent residency there I, I might be going on a limb with this but I'm very curious to hear your thoughts as we um, have this interview on the day of George Floyd's um, memorial service and in the wake of mass anti-racist protests across this country and and in and around the world you know in what ways do you think your book, um, your work serves as an example of how Black Americans um, have responded to their status, um, the racist conditions that they've experienced in the United States. Well, one thing that I noticed in my research, talking to people, and I brought it up to some degree in my book, is that um, though I don't see a strong political involvement of African Americans, some of them had said, I don't have to deal with some of these problems. And, you know, and so that, and I, I knew one person that I interviewed, for instance, and that's just one of several others. Um, he um, was back in the United States uh, for, for specific reasons, but he was on his way back to Ghana. And, 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 and there had been another police killing at this time when he was there. And he said, I can't wait to go back home. And he was referring to Ghana. And, uh, and so this, so I think that's one of the things that people feel that even if they might not be political, they feel that this is a place where they can feel a little bit safer from discrimination, where their sons won't be targeted. I felt that way. I mean, I could sit there and stop and talk to the police and have in conversations. They might be guarding traffic, but they want to ask about that. Like a lot of people are curious about other countries. So I'd sit there and have friendly conversations with them. And, 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 and we'd be both smiling. It's not so easy to do here. I've 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 been in in, um, there have been situations where I've seen police officers and I appreciate the work they do because it's a very difficult job, it's a thankless job. And I've got relatives in law enforcement, some who have passed passed away, some but some who are um, still alive. And so I have a lot of respect for them. So I'll speak to them and say, "How are you doing?" And quite often they won't speak back to me. 
you know, they, uh, uh, particularly if they're police officers who don't look like me. And I can, I can think of situations like that where they, and so there it's very different. So you don't have the fear of the law enforcement. Um, you, uh, you, know, you, you feel like you know, I mean, there's a feeling if I'm not doing anything wrong, nobody's going to bother me. That's not the case here. I mean, I've been pulled over for having the nerve to ride my bicycle through a white neighborhood or, or, or for having the, the unmitigated gall of riding in a taxi cab and been accused of uh, pulled over. Me and the, dr- the driver was pulled over, wouldn't let me out and told me, you might be carrying drugs, so we got to detain you. <laughs> of course, all, mm-hmm. I was on my way to church. All, the only thing I had in my hand was my Bible. I don't know how the Bible looks like drugs, but, you know, these, these are things that you have to go through. That's, it's unheard of in Ghana, un, absolutely unheard of. Mm-hmm. Dr. Taylor, what are you working on now? Do you have a, a small or a larger um, book project that is underway? Well, I, you know, they're in the very early stages. There are two different projects. I'm working on one which could possibly be a book and one could possibly be an article. The one that could um, possibly be an article. Um, I'm looking at um, uh, elections in the United States, particularly with the Electoral College, and how... Um, and who is dis- disenfranchised in the electoral college? Because in the electoral college, if you vote, if you're in a state where you vote for a person who's a presidential candidate who loses, your vote does not count at all. They only count because uh, all the electoral votes in that state go to the win- winner, with the exception of two states, Maine and Nebraska. So I'm looking at which party is disadvantaged as a result of that more often than the other. So I'm looking at data from past elections. And seeing what that is and what are the implications for black people who vote heavily Democratic, but um, the majority of black people live in the South in states that are Republican strongholds. So a lot of black people are not enfranchised as a result in the on, in presidential elections. That's one thing. Another thing I'm looking at more that perhaps could be a book. I'm looking at historically black colleges, but um, which are called HBCUs. But I, I'm looking at the uh, um, the phenomenon of what I call EBCUs. I coined it emerging black colleges and universities, how colleges that initially were not, um, were, were not designed as, um, for black people, college, community colleges and four-year colleges that have become, because of their location, predominantly black over the years, have uh, had black presidents and have, are functioning like HBCUs because we've regretted that some of our HBCUs have uh, have disappeared. They're gone. They've closed their doors. But what I'm saying is that, and that's unfortunate because I'm a very strong supporter of an HBCU. I'm a graduate of an HBCU, Florida A&M University, home of the mighty Rattlers. But uh, <laughs> but um, but I'm, I'm but I also I think that we shouldn't rue the fact so much that they're closing, and we should rue it. But not so we shouldn't be as upset as uh, focus on the fact that some are emerging, and so that 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 might um, that might be a book project. Well, I look forward to reading both of them on the, the EBCUs. Uh, you have a knack for uh, good coinage of, of, of new language to describe some of these processes. Dr. Taylor, I want to thank you for doing the interview with me today. Okay. And I want to thank you for interviewing me and giving me this opportunity. You can find a link to Dr. Taylor's Exiles, Entrepreneurs, and Educators, African-Americans in Ghana on New Books Network podcast channel. Until next time.